And so what we're doing as we look at, at, at these messages is we're looking at certain movies, Pixar movies, we're, we're watching certain scenes from Pixar movies to illustrate uh, my messages. You see, Jesus was a fantastic teacher and Jesus was able to use often different things to illustrate his messages. So we want to teach like Jesus at this church, amen? So I'm going to use these Pixar movies. And this morning we're going to be using a movie called Up. Who here has seen the movie Up? All right, good. A lot of you have. Uh, the movie Up came out in 2009 and it's the story of a man called Carl Friedrichsen and his attempt to get his house to para- Paradise Falls. The movie begins with a young Carl completely captivated by the adventurer Charles Munns and his trips to South America. The young Carl meets a young lady called Ellie who is free-spirited and quickly, over time, they fall in love. And then there is this scene, which we're going to watch in a few seconds, that lasts for four minutes, and it tells the story of their life together. Without any words, it tells the story of Carl and Ellie's life together. And I have a confession to make, that when I first watched it, I was bawling with tears. I don't know if that was you, but but that was me, and maybe it might be you this morning. So we're going to play this scene. Let's watch it. It's the story of Carl and Ellie's life together. As I said, not a dry high in the house, eh? A very moving scene. The story of Carl and Ellie. The whole life they dreamt of going to Paradise Falls. And even though they couldn't have children, they still had their dream of going to Paradise Falls. But as what often happens with life, Life interrupts our dreams. Life interrupts us. They had a flat tyre. Carl broke his leg. A tree fell on their house. And so they smashed their savings jar and started again. They even had a scrapbook to record their memories, a scrapbook, the adventure scrapbook that Ellie had from her childhood. One day, as we just saw, Carl is polishing the mantle and he remembers their dream and he realises he has enough money to go and make that dream that he had promised his wife a reality. But she is now too old and she passes away and he never fulfills the promise to his wife. After Ellie's death, we see that Carl shuts himself off from the world Ellie has made his world full of colour and vibrance, but now Carl is just a bitter old man, stuck in his ways. It is then that Carl decides to do something. You see, all around him, apartment complexes are going up and they want him to sell his house and, 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 and move on, move on to a retirement village. And one day he goes out to collect his paper and he strikes one of the workers and so now he's forced to move out and go to a retirement village. But he's had enough waiting and so he puts all these balloons on his house and the house rises up. Finally, Carl will fulfil his promise to Ellie and take them to Paradise Falls. So what is driving Carl? Why has Carl set off on such a deadly mission to take his house to Paradise Falls with nothing but balloons? Why does he risk his life and the life of young Russell? Remember Russell was that kid who was stuck on the porch when the the house took off? Why does he do this? Well, it's because something is driving him, 
something very powerful that drives a lot of people, and it's this, guilt. Guilt is driving Carl. The house represents Ellie and her continued presence in his life, and Carl believes that if he can just get the house to the falls, he will no longer be a disappointment in her eyes. Carl must atone for his failure to keep his promise. Carl is driven by guilt. I found that many people are driven by guilt. Last year, we had um, at OBC, we had a, a conference here called the Real Life Conference. And at that conference, there was a speaker called Alan Meyer. And Alan Meyer, in one of his talks, he shared this story about how Alan had grown up in this house with his family. And one day, when he was just a young boy, he was sitting in his bedroom at night and the house had very small fibro walls and he, and he overheard a conversation that his parents were having and the conversation was about him. And basically what his parents were saying was that they were very disappointed with him, that they didn't know what to do with him, that he was a useless kid. And Alan said that he grew up wanting to prove his parents wrong, wanting to prove to them that he was worth something, that he wasn't a disappointment. It drove his life. I wonder how many people are in this room today who can relate to Alan's story. What is driving you is this this thing that you grew up feeling like you never were quite good enough, you were a disappointment, and therefore you need to prove that you are good enough, that you are worth something. Do you know what I found being a pastor? is what I found is that what we often do is we can take our family and we can project them onto God. And so many Christians, I think, think that in God's eyes they're a disappointment. Many Christians believe that God has a scowl on his face and he's shaking his head over their lives. You're a disappointment. And so many Christians are driven by guilt when it comes to their relationship with God. Who here has got some New Year's resolutions? Have you got some New Year's resolutions? Most of you, you're a pretty lackluster mob then if you don't have any New Year's resolutions, aren't you? Not very motivated. Um, when it comes to New Year's resolutions, often Christians, I think, we can think, all right, this is the year, this is the year I'm going to do it. This is the year I'm going to get my spiritual life in order. This is the year I'm going to read my Bible all the way through. This is the year that I'm not going to be a disappointment to God. And we're motivated by guilt. Motivated by guilt. Or maybe you could think like this. This is the year I'm going to start serving Jesus, get my life together, and so God will love me. I will earn His grace. I'll earn His love. I won't be a disappointment. I'll serve at church. This is the year that that will happen. Or, this is the year I'm going to share Jesus with people. This is the year I'm going to to share my faith every day this year because certainly that is what God would want me to do and that would bring a smile on his face. You see, many Christians, I found, are motivated by guilt. They think that God is seriously disappointed with them. Their view of God is that God has a big scowl on his face And he's shaking his head and nothing you ever do is good enough. 
Nothing you ever, no level of spiritual disciplines is good enough. No amount of sharing the gospel is good enough. No amount of serving a church is good enough. No amount of giving away is good enough. Many Christians live exactly like that. Now you might be saying, well, Timon, are you saying that guilt is a bad thing? That's not what I'm saying. Guilt is actually a very healthy emotion that you should feel. All right? Guilt is very, very healthy for you. If you feel guilty about things that you do and you feel guilty and convicted about your sin, that's very, very good. Uh, Richard Stubbs, who was a 17th century Puritan, he said that all of us have a conscience and the conscience is the soul looking in on itself. It's our soul observing our life. When you sin or when you against God, you should feel guilty. Your, your conscience is like an early warning system and it's saying, something's wrong, you need to get something right. That is what our conscience does. That's what guilt is in our life. It is a great, it is a great thing to feel guilty. So I'm not saying suppress your conscience or suppress guilt feelings. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, in the Bible, when we see people suppressing their conscience and hardening their heart to the voice of God, it never goes well for them. I think of Pharaoh who hardened his heart to the Lord and it didn't go well for Pharaoh and it won't go well for you to ignore the guilt that rises in your heart. What I am saying is this, is guilt is a very poor motivation for Christian living. In fact, it can't be your motivation for Christian living. If you're motivated by guilt to read your Bible, to serve at church, to share your faith, to come to the work days, to give your money, to attend on Sunday morning, if you're motivated by guilt, it won't last very long and, it won't, and it's not what God intended for you. I want to show you that from Hebrews chapter 10. Just open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. All right? I tell you, when I was studying this for today, I, got a, I, I really struggled to put together this message. But there was this insight that I had that I think many of you need as well, and that is that often I operate with this mindset that God is disappointed with me. That God isn't pleased with me. And I want to show you that that mindset isn't the teaching of the gospel. Alright? Let's have a look in chapter 10, verse 1. In the whole book of Hebrews, Paul is encouraging the Hebrews not to go back to the law, not to go back to Judaism. He's encouraging them to stick with Christ. If you want to think of one word for the whole book of Hebrews, think of this word, better, better. Christ is better than the sacrificial system. Christ is a better priest. Christ is, is better by far. This is what the whole book of Hebrews is about. And now look in verse 1 of chapter 10. Paul says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Here's my first observation. See, if you have this approach in your mind that God has disappointed me, and if you're motivated by guilt to try and earn his forgiveness, earn his acceptance, earn his love, 
then what your spiritual life will become is it will become a shadow of what it really can be. See, for since the law has a shadow of the good things to come. A shadow is like, you see a shadow right here, my shadow, you probably can't see it, but my shadow is being reflected from the light past me onto the floor and the shadow is a fuzzy outline, a fuzzy representation of who I am. All right? When you live under the law, when you think that your acceptance with God is done by the things that you do and you're driven by guilt to pray, read your Bible, your spiritual life becomes a fuzzy shadow. It's not the real thing. It's not the real deal. Have you been in legalistic churches where they haven't had the real deal? The real thing? We heard the testimony this morning from a young lady who said she was in a church that had the real deal, where people were worshipping God wholeheartedly. She said that was impacting. It wasn't the music, it wasn't the style, it wasn't the presentation. It was the reality of what was going on in the people's hearts. Do you have a shadow or do you have the reality? You see, Carl Friedrichsen... He's walking along, right, and, and, and he's enjoying life with Ellie, but then Ellie dies, and then after that, he's just a shadow of the same man that he was. He's dragging this house along, and he can't see the adventure that's taking place before him. I mean, he's got this young guy who's following him called Russell. He, he's found this amazing bird called Kevin. And who will forget the talking dog, Doug? He's having the adventure of a lifetime. But he can't see it because he's now a shadow of the person he used to be. He's motivated by guilt. And you were never meant to be motivated by guilt to think that by your works you have to earn your acceptance with God. Because here's the second point. Look down in verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. Here's the thing, is when you adopt that process of saying, I'm going to validate my life by works, it never works. It never cleanses your guilty conscience because it's not the right sacrifice. It's not the right sacrifice. And my third point is here, is it actually reminds you of sin and actually dries up the joy in your life. Look at what he says in verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Most probably what he's speaking about there in verse 3 is he's speaking about the Day of Atonement. Once a year, there would be this Day of Atonement where the priest would offer sacrifice for the sins of the Israelites. And what he is saying is that very sacrifice reminds you of your guilt, reminds you of your sin. And here's what I've seen, is that when we adopt a similar mindset of law, when we say we're going to earn God's favour through our works and, and say we take Bible reading as the thing that we're going to earn God's favour through, I'm going to every... Day this year, I'm going to read the Bible and therefore God will no longer be displeased with me. God will be happy with me because I'm reading the Bible every day. When you adopt that approach, when you do read the Bible, you're reminded of your guilt. 
You're reminded of why you're doing it. You're doing it to make up for your guilt. And if you miss it a day, or let's say you miss it a week, or let's say you miss it a month, you're then completely defeated. And you're thinking, why even bother? Because now I'm done. I can't keep this up. You see, guilt is a poor motivation for the Christian life. It never motivates anyone for any length of time to the type of life that God wants for us and has purchased for us in the cross. There is a completely different journey. And man, I just hope that... I want all of you to go on this journey this year because it's the most important, thrilling journey. When I was preparing this message, I was thinking, if this is true, then this would revolutionise my whole life, all right? Now, I'm going to play the second clip that I want to play today from the movie Up. And uh, I want you to watch this clip, okay? This is at the end. This is the turning point of the movie. He, Carl, has finally achieved what he wanted to achieve. He's finally got the house up to Paradise Falls. He's placed the house there. But strangely, he doesn't feel the relief that he thought he would until he makes a very important observation. Let's watch the clip. So you can see there that Carl finally brings the house to Paradise Falls and as he's sitting there looking over the adventure book, he finally gets to that page, now stuff I'm going to do. Did you observe what happened? He put his hand on it And he felt, he still felt the guilt. Hmm. I thought that reading the Bible every day was supposed to absolve me of my guilt. I thought sharing Jesus with 500 people was supposed to absolve me of my guilt. I thought serving at Oakton Baptist Church was supposed to absolve me of my guilt. Carl works out that that's not what happened. And then he makes a surprising discovery that Ellie has actually forgiven him and written a new story in the book. Do you know what the Christian news is? What the good news of the gospel is? Is that in your book, God has forgiven you of your sin and written the story of Jesus in your book. That you are clothed with the righteousness of Christ if you've come to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. So therefore, there is now, what does Romans 8 verse 1 say? No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Is that, is that statement true in the Bible? That means that God, when he looks at you, doesn't look at you with condemning eyes, for all he sees is the righteousness of Jesus. I just wanted you to know this morning that the good news is really, really good news. That the gospel is often better than we think it is. And if we have this mindset, of grace. You see, 
We've been talking about guilt being our motivator. When we understand the grace of God, that there is now no condemnation, that nothing's going to separate you from the love of God. Let's open up our Bibles to, to Hebrews chapter 10 and have a look at this stuff in Hebrews chapter 10. Because he, he finishes it with such great stuff in this chapter. Look in verse 11, he says, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Verse 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The, the priests, they continually offer these sacrifices because it can't take away sins. It makes them feel more guilty. But Jesus, one sacrifice, and what is he? He's sitting. He's done. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You are being changed into the image of Christ, but for all time, you are now perfected in the eyes of God. In his book, there is no condemnation because you're in Christ Jesus. Let's continue reading. These are great promises. Verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and I will write them on my minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. God only forgets one thing, your sin. If you are in Christ, then forever you have been forgiven of sin. He doesn't remember it. There is no condemnation because you're in Christ Jesus. Now, you might ask me this very important question, if you're smart. And all of you are, I'm sure. You might ask me this question. Well, Timon, what do I do when I sin practically every day against the Lord? What do I do when I stuff up and do that thing which I know I shouldn't do? Rather, here's the thing, rather than letting your guilt drive you to works, let your guilt drive you to grace. Come back again to the Lord and say, Lord, you came to save sinners and guess what? I've just proven that I am one. I am a sinner and you've come to save sinners and here I am, Lord, and I'm honestly sorry for what I've done. I honestly come before you and repent and turn from it. But you came to save sinners and I'm one. Please save me and forgive me. And guess what? The Lord does. And you continue walking with him in the freedom of his grace. You see, grace is so much a, a, better, a better motivator. You see, once Carl Fredrickson, once he is... He's a, you know, once he is pardoned by Ellie and once he has this new book, this new story written over his life, that he is now an adventurer, you know what he does? He cleans house. He gets rid of all the old furniture, chucks it out. You see, once you understand grace, why would you live with sin? You put to death sin. You get it, get it out of your house. Once he has understood grace, you know what Carl Fredrickson does? He goes off to save Russell. And Kevin, and he risks his life to save them. You see, when you understand grace, you'll lay down your lives for others. And do you know what happens? Once you understand grace, you are completely transformed. Even Carl Friedrichsen is now using the walking stick that he once used to walk 
as a sword to fight Karl Munns. You see, grace is the thing that should motivate Christians, that we have the gospel, that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when you sin, let your sin or your guilt drive you to grace, not to works. Now, did anyone read the title of this message? Anyone? When you read your bulletin? Okay, it does have a title. And the reason it has a title is because this is the most important thing. This is the key to the message, all right? What does the title say? Someone like to read it out for me? What does it say? To go... Oh, that's a rebel. Uh, to go up, you have to go back down, or is it to... Has it... You have to go down to go back up. You see, here's the problem with grace, Ian. You want to know the problem with grace? The problem with grace is that grace means that I have to humble myself. Grace means that I have to say, God, I've stuffed up again. I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness and I need you and I need your empowering work in my life. So to go up, you have to go back down. And that's why many of us get caught in this sin cycle is because we're not really willing to humble ourselves. We sin and then we think, well, Lord, I just need to try better. I need to do better. So I'll read my Bible more and I'll pray more and I'll work harder rather than humbling ourselves and coming before God and saying, I am a sinner. I'm in need of grace. Because all the way through the Bible, you will find this same thing repeated all the way through. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to who? The humble. The humble. I pray that as you start 2012, this year, that what will motivate you towards godliness will not be guilt, but will be the amazing grace of God that the gospel is so much better than what you thought. Let me pray as we close. Father, we thank you this, for this time as we have looked at your word and looked at your truth and I pray that you would have spoken to people today and refreshed people in your amazing grace that it's unearned, undeserved favour of God that doesn't come as a result of any works. It's a gift. Thank you, Father, for this gift of God. Fill us with the joy of knowing that we are forgiven and reconciled and justified before you by a sheer act of your grace. And for those who haven't yet bowed their knee to Jesus and haven't yet accepted him as their Lord and Saviour, so they don't know this grace that we talk about, I pray, Lord, that you would convict them today to come and drink from your fountain of grace. So I pray this in Jesus' powerful name and for his glory. Amen.